Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. Big NFL week, big NFL month, conference championship games, high viewership, keen interest, Super Bowl. Got to go back a few years to when the Super Bowl was played a couple of weeks earlier to peg my guest. It's a generational icon, but maybe not this generation. Bob Greasy was the only quarterback in NFL history to lead a team to a perfect season. And it is this week, years ago in 1973, that Bob Greasy led the Miami Dolphins to a 14-7 victory over the Washington Redskins, sealing the 17-0 season for the Miami Dolphins, something that he would tell you would never be done again. Passed for 25,000 yards. In today's NFL, he could have passed for 290,000 yards. A Pro Football Hall of Famer in 1990, but then transitioned to the broadcast booth where he was Keith Jackson's partner who met his uh, untimely death last week, 98 years old. He and Keith were iconic in the broadcast booth. He has a lot to say about sports and business. Dan Colarusso, our global editor for Reuters, what do you remember about Bob Greasy? I remember rooting for that team. I love that team. I love Paul Warfield. I love Larry Zonka. I love Mercury Morris. I had all their football cards. Um, that undefeated team was a great story that year. Um, a little less hate back in the day for the undefeated team. Like, I remember when the Patriots were undefeated that year, when the Giants finally beat them in the Super Bowl, everybody was kind of hoping for the Patriots to lose, uh, everybody outside of Boston at least. I don't think that was a feeling in my, uh, the year Miami did it. I think people liked that team. That team had been together a while. They seemed like solid citizens in that day and age. Um, so, I mean, I, I think I remember Greasy as being a good quarterback, a kind of pro, consummate pro. I remember once he wore glasses with windshield wipers on them uh, in the rain, and that was like the, the cutting edge of sports technology at that point. That was like the mid-'70s, I guess. Yeah, very well done, because the previous cutting edge of sports technology for him and me as a Dolphin fan is he would take a hanky out and he'd wipe them. Right, right, <laughs> so, right. <laughs> yeah, and he and Larry Zaka and the Sunshine Boys – it revolutionized sports here in South Florida. But more important than that, his transition to the broadcast booth and his partnership with Keith Jackson. And we talk a bit about life, about transition to business. Uh, he's uh, uh, 73 years old, and it is interesting that there is a whole group of folks who may remember the name but don't remember him. We had a very interesting conversation about superstars and what it takes to keep their brand relevant We'll talk at the backside of this about the whole business of the NFL then and now. But in the meantime, here's Bob Greasy. The business of a trillion-dollar sports industry. And one of the founders of the business, he didn't know that. All he did was uh, um, end up in the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1990 and 25,000 yards passing and leading the Dolphins to two perfect seasons. But in many ways, he shaped a lot of the business of sports because of his ability to transition from on-the-field success to behind-the-broadcast booth success uh, and doing both careers with special alacrity. That means it's pretty good. Bob Greasy, how are you? How's that for an intro? That's pretty good. Good. I'm uh, doing good. Now if the Dolphins won a game, you know, I'm doing much better. Well, right. This is Evergreen, so we may run this before a number of losses, too. But i got to tell you, <laughs> based on our pregame conversations, nobody expected that. But uh, 
you know, uh, we never know. We never know with NFL football generally, plus with this team. Well, you know, the bigger issue, too, as well, obviously, uh, you're uh, – you're 17-0, uh, and 0 and n- nobody has done it, and I'll say nobody will do it again, and everybody kind of makes fun at the last undefeated team going down and what Mercury Morris has been doing. It, growing up in South Florida, South Florida is a melting pot, and people always come from somewhere else, either from the New York area south or, or the Havana area north uh, and everywhere in between. Uh, do you reflect back on the what, what you in a maybe significant way did to – change the culture, to add to the culture, to really impact the culture of South Florida? Well, you know, before the Dolphins, South Florida, Miami, never had a professional team of any sorts. They didn't have the Heat. They didn't have the Marlins. They didn't have the Dolphins. Uh, All they had was this uh, rickety old Orange Bowl where the University of Miami played. And once a year, they would have the Orange Bowl game there. So when the Dolphins came, that was the first thing. Uh, everybody just and, – and it was obviously an expansion team, and the Dolphins didn't win many games. I came in 67, the second year, and we had losing seasons for three years, 67, 8, and 9, until Coach Shula came in 1970 and then the whole thing turned around and uh that fan base that had been so loyal to uh, losing uh dolphin teams in the late 70s were rewarded when coach Shula came and then three three straight super bowls in a row we won two of them and one of them was a perfect season and and nobody can take it away from anybody i just you know, to reflect back on what it means to South Florida, not just that you get a team, but that South Florida, with all of its racial divides and ethnic stress and all, can look back at something that somebody around South Florida did perfectly. What, 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 what do you think that means? Well, um, I think it means a lot. I, 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 because, first of all, no other Dolphin team has done it before. Uh, the closest thing that this fan base in South Florida could wrap their arms around, I think, is the Miami Heat, who won the NBA uh, championship. Um, But the Dolphins uh, have been in Super Bowls before, and not uh, uh, since then, but not not won them. Uh, So I I think that uh, everybody likes to think back, the Dolphins, and when uh, we were dominating the uh, NFL and when we were the perfect season. Everybody loves to talk about the perfect season. It's great emotionally. It's great psychologically. And, you know, when you retired in 1980, uh, people would reflect back on your career that started in 67. And you had other things in mind, I guess. 82, you teamed with Charlie Jones with NBC and called Super Bowl Twenty. And then with ABC, ESPN, and then back to the Dolphins' color. Um, how did you make your mind up to transition from football on the field to broadcasting? And what did you have to do to prepare for your next career? Well, I came out of Evansville, Indiana. My dad was a plumber. I didn't know that I was going to uh, be able to get a 
college education. Uh, I was a better baseball player uh, than football or basketball, which I played all three sports. The um, We were playing um, in the American Legion World Series of for uh, in 1967, the year I went on and, and went to Purdue, and in the summer before I went to Purdue, a Baltimore Orioles scout comes and wants to sign me as a pitcher as, to a Baltimore Orioles um, minor league team. And I said, no, I'm going to Purdue. I'm going to get an education um, and, and go on from there. So I didn't have any aspirations of, of playing uh, professional football. I wanted to just go ahead and and and, and get my education and, and be at Purdue and and um, uh, things happened. Uh, we won the the Rose Bowl. I had a couple of good years at Purdue. Uh, uh, finished second in the Heisman voting to Steve Spurrier. So it got drafted first by the Dolphins. Uh, it. it you know, everything, I majored in industrial management and certainly not uh, broadcasting. Um, so I just came down. I said, all right, I, you know, uh, let's, I played for the Dolphins for 14 years and coached one year with Coach Shula. Uh, and then he said, uh, I said, I walked, after that was over with, I walked in and said, here's your playbook. I'm, I'm finished. He says, oh, no. He says, you got to do this. He says, you love this coaching business. I said, yeah, but I love my three kids more. <laughs> so after that, then um, NBC came to me and wanted to know if I was interested in broadcasting. And I said, well, yeah, I'll try that. You know, uh, I could spend spend a lot more time with my kids during the week than you would uh, being a coach in the NFL. So uh, that's how I got into it. And um uh, the first five years I did with NBC and did the NFL, and then the next 25 years I did college games of the first half with Keith Jackson and uh, then Brad Nessler and then a whole bunch of other guys. Well, so obviously the transition was something that you were able to do, um, I wouldn't say fairly easily, but the kind of industrial engineering background and, and makeup, you're a very analytic, analytical, analytic person. You know, you'll throw seven passes and win a game and go undefeated. You'll transition into broadcasting. Well, what's, the, what's the biggest skill or the easiest skill you can identify in your world that were kind of common to both on-field success and broadcasting success from your perspective? Well, I, you know, I think growing up um, in southern Indiana, uh, my dad died. He was a plumber, and then my dad died when I was 10. My mother had to go to work as a, a secretary. Um, Little League baseball was big to me. You know, all I wanted to do was go to school, grade school at first, uh, and then afterwards find some kind of athletic thing to do, baseball or basketball. Didn't have football back then organized in any way. Um, so I, I just wanted to do the best I can. I was very competitive, um, competitive in the athletic uh, environment, uh, and then also competitive uh, 
in the in the classroom. I remember back in grade school, we were the teacher would stand everybody up in the back of the room, and we'd have a spelling contest. And I was I I damn sure wanted to win that contest. Well, if you spelled the, a word wrong, you had to sit down. And I I, def, I definitely was the last person standing more often than not. So I would say, you know, the competition, the competitiveness. I, I wanted to be, do the best I can. And in this business about throwing seven passes or ten passes or twelve passes, you, we won those games, and I, and I called the plays. If I wanted to, if I wanted to be the MVP of the Super Bowl, I could have thrown twenty-five or thirty passes, but that's not what we needed to do to win. Our, our strength was was Zaka and Kick and Mercury Morris and the offensive line. I feel badly, and I told Paul Warfield this. You know, he was one of the best wide receivers to ever play in the National Football League but he didn't get a chance to show his real skills because we didn't throw that much. You know, we, you know, I, like you said, we threw seven balls, but we won the Super Bowl. So um, yeah, that's kind of where I, I come from. I, you know, it's not, it's not about me. It's about the team. And clearly that's the way it's been consistently for you too. Just a couple more. From the broadcasting perspective, you've been in it for years and you can reflect back on how things have changed from a business, I guess, of broadcasting perspective. What, what's the biggest change you've seen since you broke in in 1982? Um, is it social media? Is it, you know, the need to get something done quickly? Just, just kind of give me your perspective on the last 30 years and what's the biggest change in the media broadcasting business has been. Well, you, definitely social media is, is part of it. And then uh, I think the technology of, um, you know, back, you know, way back, it first started as black and white, and they only had uh, two or three cameras. I think uh, the first Super Bowl, um, ABC, no, I think it was NBC and CBS, both televised the game. Um, um, and then after that, uh, they they started giving it away to one side or one network or the other. But you know they didn't have telestrators back then. They didn't have. Um, <laughs> I mean, if if you saw it, you you may get a replay of, of a big play, and you may not. I mean, so so much so much has happened with through the networks and through uh, television, and so the the uh, uh, the improvement. Uh, in the trucks, the, con- the construction of the trucks that produce these things uh, uh, has r- really come a long way. And I'd say that's that's probably the, the color is much better. The uh, the, um, uh, the broadcasters are better, but but also the telestrators and uh, all the all the fancy buttons, the whistles and the buttons and all that other stuff that we push nowadays is much better than it was. Finally, Bob Greasy, the quintessential team player, always willing to share credit. How does it feel when you walk down the street and people remember and recognize your son for both on-field and broadcasting more than you? What do you, what do you really think of that? Are you proud of it, or you just want to want to beat the heck oh, out of, of that? Of course, yeah, no, of course, <laughs> I'm proud of it. Um, now, I'm 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 very proud of it when when I'm not around him. When when we're together, I I said, well. Uh, uh, 
first of all, he went to Michigan, and uh, and in front of him, I'll say, well, you couldn't get into Purdue, so you had to go to Michigan, you know? Good answer. <laughs> Good answer. Well, obviously, the, the, the answer is that, uh, that uh, you have an incredible perspective, both on and off the field, and it's an honor and pleasure to know you and really appreciate your time. Bob Greasy, Rick Caro, be on the scoreboard. See you in a couple minutes. So, Bob, very interesting play-by-play guy or an analyst for the Dolphins and uh, laments that a lot of people don't know him. And uh, it's fun when you're with him and you point somebody out who does recognize him because it does make his day, but he deserves a lot more than that. You talk about a couple of issues then and now, and, Dan, one of the big issues is always today when you think of something 50 years ago is, is money, 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 money. You know, the NFL for salary cap exploded from $120 million to $167 million over the past six years rising about $10 million a year. And one of the interesting things is you would say money doesn't buy happiness, but surely you want more money than less money, especially as the offseason leads to signing key free agents. Yeah, I mean, even in Greasy's case, forget the idea of uh, salary cap. Think about Madden. You know, there was no Madden for him to be the cover on the year after they went undefeated, right? Um, there, there were no, none of those ancillary promotional slash revenue streams existed. Um, and even in Greasy, I thought it was interesting in his conversation, he talked about when he went to Purdue, he had no plans to become a professional football player. You think about the machinations now of Cam Newton's father or Todd Marinovich's parents or breeding, trying to breed NFL superstars. And it was a totally different money machine back then. And I think uh, if you look at why no one will go undefeated again, your posit, I'm not so sure, but it could be just because of the attention, the focus, the pressure, and the fact that teams don't get to stay together so long anymore to kind of perfect their chemistry. Uh, so you have that one great season, and before you know it, you have to let two of your offensive linemen go because your starting wide receiver needs a new contract. Uh, that's a really relevant point. And, and those of us who remember the old Dolphins, and people will re- remember everything about that, uh, Zaka Kick Warfield left to go to Memphis and John Bassett, the WFL. not free agency but a rival league, yeah. and that basically tore them up. And today, the NFL analogy is that six of the top ten spenders in free agency this past season um, were the ones that made the playoffs, the Rams, the Panthers, the Titans, the Vikings, the Patriots. And how about those Jaguars? They went from 3-13 and 13 to 10-6. and six. You could say good coaching, you could say team chemistry, but it's all about money. Well, it's all about putting the money, to, the talent together at the right time. Your window's a lot smaller, so... Will you, you don't mind going to the Super Bowl as a wild card. It might have been tougher in the old days with the talent, um, you know, the talent distribution. So that, that makes Greasy's story even more interesting, um, especially as a quarterback who came back from an injury in that great year, but had several great years before it and a couple after. So it, it is an interesting, the, the money has changed the tenor of the competition. Um, you, it's, you know, it's not, you can't just lament the money because it really does change the stakes and change the dynamics of how teams approach things. So it's a different game. It's a probably better game in terms of speed and skill, but uh, it certainly lacks a little bit of the charm and continuity that, you know, older fans remember and, and cherish. Yeah, interesting other change. Bob Greasy went over to England uh, on vacations in the 70s and 80s. Now the Jaguars play uh, the Eagles at Hotspur's new White Hart Lane Stadium next year. Seattle uh, Seahawks, uh, actually Seahawks play the Raiders at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Jaguars-Eagles at Wembley. Titans and Chargers at Wembley. 
uh, bottom line is you have a menu of teams who want to get away and want to expand and want to be the next team in England and London. But the difference between Greasy's time and now is it is clearly an international league with international rights and global development. That technology, I mean, how could you get the game back then? You wouldn't be able to get it. Um, you know, I remember watching a Giants-Falcons playoff game from my hotel room um, on the web in Hong Kong. Uh, that's the technology that didn't exist, the accessibility, the ability to market through esports, through apparel, through any other cross-promotion that you can get is exponentially different now because of technology. And I think the NFL's done well. I don't know that the NFL will ever be, or in my lifetime, will be permanently in, a glo- in an international market. Um, but I, I do think that the international exposure is crucial for the game and crucial to keeping those ancillary revenue streams vibrant. Well, and, and look at the incremental creep as a football fan. Mark Weller, the NFL's EVP of Events and International, talks about the playing of three games in three straight weeks, buying tickets, attending games, logistics next year, four games in four weeks. So they may not be heading to an expansion team right away, but it's certainly much different than it was when they started this over a decade ago, and it's certainly much different than Bob Greasy's time. What about other countries? How far do you think the NFL could go as far as international reach? I don't know. I mean, you know, the game is pretty uniquely North American um, in a way that hockey – translated very well to Central and Eastern Europe uh, and, and now in Asia. Uh, and baseball has always been a mainstay in Asia and Latin America. I think football has a uniquely American quality to it that makes it more akin to taking the show on the road, right? So we could take it to England. We could take it to Germany. I think it'll do well in Europe. I don't think it'll have the resonance in some of the warmer climates in Africa and Latin America, um, and uh, I think China could catch on, and they would certainly have the venues and the fan base that the NFL would want to tap into, but I don't know that they'd ever have the breakthrough talent or the resonance, uh, the, just, a, just a, the human resonance um, that, uh, that, that it would have in other markets. So I, I, think, th- I think the real opportunity is in, is in Europe um, and maybe a little push into, uh, into Asia. Just remember, 5%, 0.5% market share in China fills up 13 stadiums. And most important... Uh, th- right? Um, that's, that's the amazing thing about China, right? That's the amazing thing about China for the big five sports. Uh, yeah. the, a, a, a rounding error in China is an entirely new market. And uh, the most important thing about all of that is that uh, my Dolphins, uh, iconic, global, worldwide, your miserable Giants, wait till next year. They do wait. They will wait till next year, won't they? All right, and, and here is the open bet. Uh, uh, this year, we get on this podcast same time next year, and if your Dolphins had a be- my Dolphins had a better season rec- record than your Giants, you wear um, shorts to work. We'll do a video podcast, and I'll wear I'll wear my my Paul Warfield jersey, um, and uh, from '73. I don't think I think it still fits, and uh, and if not, you'll wear your I Love Eli Manning uh, T-shirt. That's a perfect deal because okay. the thought of you prying yourself into something from uh, 1972 is worth <laughs> it. Excellent. Bob Greasy, Dan Calaruso, Partners in Crime, Rick Haro. See you soon. Thanks, Robert. Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. The producer, Alex Cohn. Associate producers, Freddie Joyner and Ryan Warner. Assistance provided by Carlos Swadek, Tanner Simpkins, and Ronnie Sokatch. And the executive editor of Reuters Digital, Dan Calaruso. I'm Rick Haro. Thanks again for listening. See you next time on Keeping Score.